Bibles to Ephesians 4. And I want to begin reading just the first three verses of the text. Ephesians 4. Paul writes, I therefore. In other words, on the basis of everything I just said, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech or I plead with you that you walk worthy of the calling. The vocation is the word calling. The calling wherewith you are called. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I don't know if you've ever driven someone driven somewhere only trusting your GPS. You don't know where you're going. You've never been there before. You type the address into your phone or device, and now your GPS is telling you where to drive. You get into your car, you drive, you follow the little blue line on your phone or car screen, but you have, while you know the name of your destination, you really don't know your destination, and you really don't have any idea how you're going to get there. Have any of you ever done that before? I'm sure all of us probably have at one time or another. Just a couple of weeks ago, a North Carolina man, Phil Paxton, drove his car off of a bridge and into a creek near Hickory because his GPS told him to. The bridge had been rendered inoperative nine years prior because of heavy flooding, but his GPS still took him over the bridge. It was a dark night. There was no warning sign or barrier to prevent any car from driving into the creek. And by the way, he did die in the accident. It's a terrible, terrible thing. In fact, in 2014, a year after the bridge was destroyed by the heavy flooding, a local paper called it a bridge to nowhere, and the article called for the local authorities to do something, but no one did for nine years. Now, I know how terrifying it can be driving by GPS alone. This past summer, uh, we mission team went up to Maine, and uh, after we got out of the airport, we drove up to Machias and and dropped off some group in Machias. A group went up to Pembroke. Uh, that was where about 30, 40 minutes up north of where we were, were going to be ministering. And I dropped a group off, off there, and it was probably, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night, and uh, maybe 10. Maybe 10. Uh, it didn't matter because I had a two-hour drive back to Bangor to pick up another group that was flying in. I got to Bangor, uh, picked up that group. Uh, I had told them, you're driving, but you know what? I was okay. I I'd had a whole bunch of Coke Zero, and so I just kept going and drove all the way back to Pembroke, dropped them off. Then I had to drive back down to where we were staying, Machias, and I think I got to bed 3.30 or 4 a.m. I, I, I did notice that some of the teenagers were questioning my work ethic the next day, and I'm looking at them, well, you got a full night of sleep, so don't talk to me about this, but anyway. I say all that to say, as I was driving from Pembroke, which is, if you wonder where Pembroke, Maine is, you, you need to open a, an encyclopedia to middle of nowhere, and it'll have a picture of Pembroke, Maine. It is in the middle of nowhere. And I, when, while, I, while we were there, I, I had a little bit of signal through the Wi-Fi in the house in which some of our group was staying. I entered it into my phone, and I began driving back to Bangor. But I'm going to tell you, it was all back roads, and some of those roads weren't even roads. They were more like alleys. 
I'm, I'm driving down these uh, sometimes dirt roads. In fact, I remember I was on one road. It's pitch black. There's uh, and and my my the van kind of comes over a rise and out in the distance. And this is probably midnight or later. There's a, a a teenage girl and her boyfriend sitting at the end of a driveway just talking. And I thought, well, that's kind of funny. These are the only people I've seen in about an hour. So I you know kind of waved at them as I went by. But but you know what was running through my mind the whole time is if I make a wrong turn or if or if I don't follow this exactly, what my phone will do is say, oh, you're off the road. I need to reroute. And then I'll never get back to the original route. So I followed that absolutely to the letter. I was glued to my phone. I can't imagine what would have happened if the GPS was wrong. Now, let me tell you something. The Christian life has a global positioning system, and it's never wrong. It's never wrong. The signal cannot be lost, at least not from God's part, and it always leads you to the right place. Our GPS is God's word activated by the Holy Spirit leading and working in our lives. We have a clear indication where God wants us to go and how we're going to get there and even what getting there looks like. And God's word teaches us that to live a life that glorifies him by mimicking Jesus, it results in a life that is others-oriented and encourages spirit-enabled unity in the church. So consider with me first. Your lifestyle should glorify God. It absolutely should. In fact, if you look here at verse 1, we find salvation results in a lifestyle change. I plead with you, brothers, I'm pleading with you, that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you were called. Now, Ephesians 4 talks about this worthy walk. And the word walk means to order your life. And I use the word lifestyle for that. It's just how you live your life. Think of your lifestyle, your culture. He's saying you should go about your life every day in a way that adorns the gospel of Jesus, that makes much of God. So before Christ... People don't live this way. If you go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 2, how do people live before Christ? Wherein in a previous time, in times past, you walked, here's our word, you ordered your life according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our lifestyle, our conversation, that's our lifestyle in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Unsaved people are governed by unsaved culture. They, they do what unsaved people do. And, and he even says here, more than that, they're allied with an evil prince. That's Satan. They, they're actually in, a, in, a, in an ally relationship with Satan. And unsaved people are disobedient to God. They live to fulfill out to fulfill their sinful passions, living out their sinful thoughts. And so this God's word says they're subject to God's wrath. Unsaved people, before Christ, an unsaved person walks in the manner of unsaved people. But the new walk is that which we have learned of Christ. Look at chapter 4 again. 
And look at the look at verse 20, because to me, this is the center part of this whole section of of Ephesians. Paul says, you have not learned Christ. And he's talking about not that you hadn't learned anything about Christ. He's saying, don't verse 17, don't order your life as the unbelievers do other Gentiles. Those other Gentiles, those are unbelieving Gentiles. Don't order your life as an unbelieving Gentile. Order their lives in the emptiness, the spiritual emptiness of their mind. Verse 20, this is not how you learn Christ. So to me, the center of this whole section is Paul is saying, you learned Christ. When you got saved, you had been walking a certain way. And then you trusted in Jesus and you started walking a new way. This is the way of Christ. This is the way you learned Christ. This is the way you should walk. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2 and look again at verse 10, he's talking about what the worthy walk looks like. We are the workmanship of, of God created in Jesus Christ unto what? Unto what? Good works which God has already predetermined that we should actually see the word, walk in them, order our lives in them. So before I'm saved, I'm walking according to the course of this world. I'm displeasing to God. But the moment I become a Christian, I turn around and I start walking in the way of Christ. I begin to learn Christ. And as I learn Christ, I get a new life. It's a changed life. Everything begins to change. I'm a new creation in Jesus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And this new life then becomes a holy life. It's set apart to God. I don't mean purity in the sense of it's always right, but our lives are set apart to God. And in this new life, it's one of service to Jesus Christ. We are his workmanship. He created us in Christ, in our salvation, to do all of these good things. That's what Jesus is doing in us. And so if you go back to chapter 4 then, you find what this worthy walk looks like or how it operates in verse 16. This worthy walk operates, he says, the whole body. That's the whole body of Christ. And I, and I think here, uh, body is probably a reference to this, this local church in Ephesus, but it would be true of any local church. It is joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. In other words, the body's put together, the joints and the ligaments and the muscles and the tendons, they all fit together, right? And what is it doing? It's working together in the measure of every part. The hand is being a hand, the eyes are being eyes, the nose is being a nose, right? Our parts are working as they're supposed to work and it increases, it edifies the body. Look at what it does, verse 16, the last couple of words, in love. And so really, love helps us have a collective life as we love one another. We don't live in isolation. We're not intended to live in isolation. We live an others-oriented life. So the old walk was all about self. What do I want? Fulfilling my lusts and my desires. But now the new walk, the worthy walk, is a walk that actually glorifies God, 
because it's a life of service to Christ by serving others in the church. And this is following Paul's example. Go back to verse 1. Look how he describes himself. Look at it. What's his description of himself? I am a what? I'm a prisoner. And I think here you could take this in one of two ways. And I think both ways are actually helpful. He could either be saying, I'm a prisoner to Christ. That is, um, Jesus has put me in prison, as it were, so that now I am his servant. I, I'm locked in. I'm a prisoner to Christ. Jesus is my master. So what I do, I do what he wants me to do. And I think that can be a pretty fair interpretation here. It can also mean that because I do what Jesus wants me to do, I am now a prisoner. And Ephesus is a prison epistle. So he could say, I am a prisoner because I've actually been serving Jesus. So doing what Jesus wants me to do put me in opposition to the world. And because of that, it makes my actions different. And the world saw that as dangerous. So the world has put me into prison. Either way, what Paul is saying is here is, I am connected to Jesus. So if you think about what's actually going on here, did Jesus walk, did he order his life in a God-glorifying way? Well, of course he did. Of course he did. The Father was glorified in the Son. He said that on occasions when he spoke from heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And I think here we have the same kind of idea where it says that my life, just like Paul's life, just like Jesus's life, my life should all be about glorifying God. So the question is, is your life all about glorifying God? Is that really what it's about? Is it different from the lives of unbelievers? I don't mean, uh, you could take this radically and, uh, and in, a, in a kind of a hyper, a semantic kind of way, a literal way that's unhealthy and say, well, you know, I'm going to dress completely different from my culture. Uh, that's the way of the world. I'm going to dress completely different from that. So I stand out. That is not what this text is teaching. It's not what I'm asking you to do. I mean, in character and conduct, is your life different from the lives of unbelievers? Is it holy? Is it set apart to God? And is it about serving Christ? And is it about others being exalted above you? Because... Because my lifestyle, which should glorify God, now I need to know how to do that, right? And, it's, and this leads to our second thought. We glorify God as we mimic Christ. Look at number two here. This is my second point. Your lifestyle will glorify God as you mimic the character of Christ. That is, you should follow the Lord's example of humility with all lowliness, circle that word, and meekness, circle that word. Lowliness is a noble virtue in the Christian life. And I'm telling you, that was the exact opposite of the way the Greeks were thinking. The Gentiles who were unsaved did not see lowliness as a virtue. In fact, the way they saw lowliness was as not being virtuous. The full life to the unsaved Gentiles was anything that makes you better. They were always chasing the better. And is that true in some of our cultures? We call it the American dream, but I'm going to tell you something. It's true in Hinduism. You go around to see uh, Ganesh, uh, the elephant, half elephant, half boy god with the, with the 
uh, snout upturned, right? That's the idea of success. Um, within every culture, within this culture, whatever makes you better is better. And Paul's actually saying, no, lowliness is actually a virtue. And to the Greeks, lowliness is not part of their equation of how they're going to live their lives. But actually, Paul is saying, okay, you live a life that adorns the gospel, and the very first character quality he gives is lowliness. Modern man does not consider lowliness a virtue. You don't see it in media, in sports, right? I mean, uh, it's all about chest thumping and uh, in your face. It's, it's all about showing I'm better than you and putting other people down. In fact, it gets so bad that many of the sports have to have rules saying if you, if you actually taunt your opponent, you're going to get a violation. You're going to lose yards or get some sort of penalty. And in soccer, they give you a, a yellow card. You get one more, you're out of the game. It. Let me tell you, that's our, that's our culture. Our culture does this. But, but what Jesus, what Paul is saying here is Jesus didn't do that, and we shouldn't either. Life in our culture is all about bettering self. It's a personally selfish concept of financial growth or personal achievement. And, and, and in fact, in their minds, this is what it's considered to be healthy. We're actually told you can't love other people until you love yourself. That's not a biblical concept. Low self-esteem. Literally, lowliness. Do you, do you realize, folks, the words are almost the same. Low self-esteem and lowliness is bad. Now, I will say modern psychology puts a pretty strong definition on what low self-esteem looks like, and it's not all lowliness. But they're synonymous in a lot of ways. In DSM-5, which is what counselors use and psychologists use, lowliness is considered to be tantamount to depression. But, but we're called to be lowly people because lowliness is a virtue in Christ. Lowliness is having a right estimate of one's self. It's not thinking, as Romans 12 says, not thinking too highly of oneself. It's actually to think as we are. So as I am in Christ, for a person who is in depression, for a person who is really self-loathing, I go and say, look, you are made in the image of God. You have Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you. There is all these good things. That, that actually does happen, particularly from abuse. But for the average believer, I have to reiterate, you know what? You need to remember you're not as high in your mind as you think you are. You have to think as you really are. The word we use for that is modesty. You, you know what modesty is, right? Well, we in our English word, we tend to say covering up, particularly ladies, you know, covering up so you're modest. But that's not really what the word means. The idea here is not being flamboyant or calling attention to oneself. You see, we're talking about being modest as being, that's the idea of being lowly, of actually having a right opinion of myself. In fact, I would go further I think this lowliness is actually a pouring out of oneself. Do you remember what Paul writes to the Philippians about Jesus? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not think it was something he had to hold on to, but rather made himself of no reputation. And he took upon himself the form of man. He poured himself out first, by going from heaven, coming to earth, and becoming man, becoming the God-man. And then he goes further. And he 
was willing to suffer as a servant, even the worst kind of death, the death of the cross. That's the second pouring out. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. Jesus was lowly. But that's a good thing. And that's what we should be pursuing. Jesus poured himself out. We should pour ourselves out. Number two, the second word here is meekness. And it's a similar virtue. It's very similar to lowliness. It's the idea of being gentle in manner or character. Think of an animal that has been trained is now completely controlled. The dog who sits, uh, who sits right at the feet of his owner and doesn't move until he's told to move. That's kind of the idea here. Or the dolphins at the zoo. You know, the music's going and the music goes up and the dolphin goes up and the trainers are doing things with their arms and the dolphins are going all over the place. It's the same kind of thing. It's someone who is being controlled, but not by self, being controlled by the Spirit of God. So now he's meek. And meekness is something Jesus had too. He was more meek than anyone else. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1. This is one of the graces we should be putting on. Colossians 3 and verse 12. It's something Paul says for Timothy to pursue. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. This is something, meekness is something we should all have. So he says, okay, be like Christ by being lowly and meek. Notice a a second or, I'm sorry, a third quality here with long suffering. And this is letter B. You should also follow not only Jesus' example of humility, but second, follow his example of patience. Patience is keeping anger out of reach. The word here is macrothumia. Now the word thumas, the word thumas or thumia, the word thumas means wrath or indignation. It's a word for extreme anger. Think of somebody who's lost his temper, right? He's just completely lost it. He's boiling over with rage. And macros, so that's thumos. Macros means far or long. So it means to set something away from you in a remote or distant place. You you know, you you think about what it would be like you're traveling you leave something at a friend's house and then you drive three or 400 miles home and you get home and you go, oh, no. I left my book or I left a, a shirt I need or I left something. Now, in days gone by, that became the property. of the, I just donated it to that person, right? Because there was probably little or no way I was ever getting that back. But in today's world, you just call UPS or FedEx and you put it, put it on a plane and it gets there. Most of the time. And this is the idea of Macross. It's in a place that's so far distant, you can't really reach it. Jesus used this word to talk about the Pharisees and their long prayers. He said they went to a far country, the prodigal son did, right? So, so it's the idea of long, far. And when you do macrothemia, it's anger, but I can't ever reach it. I can't ever get to it. It's just out of reach. And patience, my friends, is a virtue in Christ. Jesus steadfastly suffered on our behalf. He had patience. He was slow to revenge the wrongs against him. Peter says when they uh, cursed him, he didn't respond with threats. When he suffered, he threatened not. He didn't verbally respond to what they said about him. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before her shearers does not speak, is dumb, does not speak. That was our Lord Jesus. And that's because he was fully patient. You see, 
Now, I'm just going to say to you, maybe when you were thinking, am I living a life that's glorifying to God? Uh, he's going to talk about actions, behavioral things. He's going to talk about maybe some habits that I have that I shouldn't have. Isn't it interesting that what Paul focuses on is actually character qualities of humility and patience. If you're going to be like Jesus, if you're going to live life glorifying to God, you must pursue humility. You must pursue patience. You have to be lowly of mind, gentle with others, and long-suffering with them. Now, all that brings me then to my third point, because if you want to glorify God and you choose to do that by, by pursuing the virtues of lowliness, meekness, and patience, what can you expect to get out of that? What will that produce in you? And they produce a couple of qualities that really are glorifying to God, that God just loves. And these two things, well, number one, you see, well, this is point number three. Mimicking the character of Jesus will lead you to two worthy pursuits. Number one, you will be able to forbear others. Do you see again in verse two? Forbearing one another in love. Forbearance means to endure. And in, and in this case, literally, it's the idea of you're, you're actually be able to handle things that would cause other men to fold. People who appear stronger wouldn't be able to do it. Think of a powerful wind, hurricane force winds, but in that wind, you're able to stand upright. You can actually hold up under the horrible weight and pressure that's pressing down on you. Why? Because you forbear. You can endure. The pressure is the problem of living in a sinful world. So I'm under this weight. Imagine living with somebody who's not like this, who has absolutely no forbearance at all. Every time you do something, He's right on you. You know, you weren't right. He's not necessarily confessing his own sins, but he's on you every time you do something against that person. You, you think about these qualities of, of humility and patience. Imagine living with somebody who's arrogant and has that swagger of I'm always right, or he's not gentle at all, but he's gruff with his words and, and even the effect he has, the way he looks. And he has no patience at all. He's demanding of others when he lets himself off of the hook. Imagine with living someone like that in your life. There comes a point in time where you're thinking, I can't put up with this guy anymore. We have a, a little video of uh, Melanie and Ella when they were little girls. And uh, Ella was just a baby. And uh, Melanie wasn't much more than a baby, right? And uh, Melanie's laying on the, on the floor of our kitchen. And Ella's laying next to her. And Becky's videoing them. And Ella has a fist full of Melanie's hair. A fist full of hair. Well, little babies make fists, you know. And she, she grabbed on. And here's what, here's what the, it's awesome. Here's what the video says. Mom, I can't stand it. She's so upset because Ella keeps pulling her hair. And, and I'm just going to tell you, this is what happens when you don't have lowliness and meekness and patience. It doesn't matter if you're with the best people in the world. You'll come to a place where you'll go, I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. But forbearance, what is, what's amazing about it, it keeps the lid on your life when that person walks into the room. I'm, I'm just going to say, one of the, 
one of the most difficult things for me as a pastor is to watch church members fight with each other. I actually was years ago, two men who are no longer part of our congregation. I won't tell you names because you would know them. I get a phone call. I'm actually, it's, a, it's my day off. I get a phone call and it's one of the men and he says, um, I just had a run in with so-and-so and I'm really upset about it. Okay, what would you like me to do? You want me to drive home? I'm out of town. Would you like me to drive home? I can go talk. No, you don't need to talk to him. But you got to do something about him. He's trouble. He's got, I don't like him. I don't like him at all. Okay. All right. Hold on a second. Let me put you on hold. He's calling on the other line. Click. Uh, hi. Um, what's going on? I kind of had an idea. I just had a run in with this guy. You know, this guy, I don't know if I can go to a church where a guy like that goes to church. I'm not kidding. That's what he said. Really? Well, why is that? Well, I, I'm just, he's just horrible. I, I don't want to be around a guy like that. Okay, hold on a second. I got him on the other line. Hold on. I'm going to go back in. And, and for about an hour and 45 minutes, while my wife shopped in all the outlet mall stores in Smithfield, I walked around the parking lot trying not to get hit by cars, literally talking to one man and then the other man and back and forth and back and forth. And all that to say is neither of them were showing this. There was no forbearance. It was just this person wronged me. And now magically, as if I have some sort of wand, I'm supposed to magically make it right again. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, <laughs> you people have a problem. Do you know what it is? It's that you don't love each other. Because this forbearance, it works because of love. Do you see that? You're forbearing one another in love. You seek the very best for that person. You're not, you're not trying to get even. You're not trying to tell other people what that person did wrong or how that person wronged you. You're seeking the best for that person. And if you're not seeking the best for that person, friends, that person may be wrong, but something's also wrong with you, right? I mean, it, it, you say to me, Pastor, she caught me in the hall this week and she caught me in the hall last week and she caught me in the hall the week before. Or, you know, he parked in my spot at church. He, his family sat in the seats I normally sit in. It's one thing or another, and it's week after week after week after week after week. What are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to pray for you, brother, that you start loving people like you should. Because that's my answer. That's my answer. I may not say that out loud from my lips, but that's what I'm thinking in my head, just so you know. Next time you say that to me, that's what I'm thinking. You see, when you forbear one another's in love, you put the other person first. This is the golden rule. There's a reason why we call it the golden rule, not the silver rule, not the bronze rule, not the wooden rule. It's the golden rule. Why? Because it's doing to other people what you would have them do to you. It's putting them first. It's just simply that's all it means. You're setting their needs above your own. What you want from others, you give to them in abundance. You nourish them with the very thing that you want without a, hoping they'll give it back. That's love. The result is a life that mimics Christ because you refuse to talk badly about another person because you love him or her. Him or her. It doesn't mean there's nothing to say. It doesn't mean there's no reason to criticize, but you forbear criticizing. That's what forbear means, to not do it. 
or you refuse to demand repayment for wrongs because you love him, you love her. This is the owing part. Yeah, it's there. He broke a window on your car. He threw a stick and it hit your child above the eye and cut his eyebrow. You know, he, he failed to do something he promised to do. And you just, you know, it's, he owes me an apology. Okay, he does. He owes you an apology. But how about forbearing him in love? How about actually loving that individual? You see, doing that leads us to my second result that God loves. You'll maintain Christian unity. You're eager. You're endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You're eager to be unified. You're not being dragged into being unified. You, you desire it more than anything in your life. This is what you really want. You want to be unified together. And an endeavor is not just the goal, but the diligence to accomplish the goal. You're pursuing it. You're driving for it. And you will not be denied. You will maintain unity at all costs. This is something you apply to yourself to accomplish. So if nobody else is willing to be unified, I will remain unified. Even if everybody else is being in a way that's wrong, I will remain in the right. And though they do wrong me from time to time, I will always forbear because I'm eager to maintain that unity. And friends, that's the unity that the Spirit of God is pursuing in you. He's producing in you. We, we are unified. And, he, and he's got these series of things here around which we're unified. We're one body in Christ. We have one spirit, one hope, one hope, Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. And these are doctrinal truths which produce practical realities in life. That's all true. All of these things are kind of part of our oneness. But friends, when we, when we actually are letting the Spirit produce this unity in us, now there's peace in the body of Christ. There's actually peace there. It's tranquil. Like the explorer who saw the Pacific Ocean. Do you know what he said when he saw the Pacific Ocean? Do you remember? Anybody? What did, he, what did the explorer say when he saw the Pacific Ocean? Pacifico. Peace. Now I don't know what day he got there. Was it a day when a storm was rolling in? But he said... Peace. And this is a beautiful word. We, we have this word in our language. In, in Hebrew, it's shalom, right? Shalom has a big meaning, but it's basically peace. In all the languages, it's, it's a beautiful word. Pache, Romanian. Pache. It's peace. It's just a beautiful word. And it keeps you at peace. There's, there's no room for bickering in Christ. I mean, look, we're in a church. This is a volunteer organization. You know that? It's volunteer. I, I'm, I, Pastor Joe and I and Becky are the only non-volunteers. We, we do it because we're compelled to, right? It's our jobs. Everybody else volunteers. All right? And because you volunteer, you, you're put in a position where you have to do certain things and you do them, and sometimes you do them, and it's not even the way you want to do it. You'd say, well, if I was in charge, I'd do it a different way. I, I totally get that, folks. I really, really do. And sometimes we have somebody new to the church, and they start asking the questions. Have you ever thought about doing it this way? 
and yeah, but I don't want to say that. But so I go, hmm, okay. And it, you know, and they've got all these ways they want to do things, and that's fine. I, I really don't mind. It's because it's a volunteer organization. But but what I I but while there's differences, and there are going to be differences, they're sometimes little, sometimes they're big. I remember our church is not even a year old, and I got a call from one of our church members, um, or I guess I guess we had membership, so he was a member. And he said, well, whose stupid decision was blah 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 And I said, well, that was mine. <laughs> and, after, and after hearing the tone in your voice, I think maybe that was a stupid decision on my part. That may be on my fault, so you'll have to forgive me for that. Now, that gentleman is still a member of our church. I'm just going to tell you, that these things happen. We, we just have run-ins. It's just, it's inevitable, right? The only reason we really meet together is because of Christ. But if we didn't have Christ, for many of us, we, we probably wouldn't be good friends. But we have this relationship because of Christ. And, and because we have love one for another, it prevents the bickering. It prevents uh, the, the angry shouting. And instead, we follow God's ordered plan for us. My friends, any other system, if you use any other system other than this one, you will drive your spiritual car off the road eventually. But if you follow Christ, if you actually say, I'm going to be like my Lord, and I'm going to glorify God by, by actually pursuing these character qualities, well, then you become something that really adorns. It just makes the gospel beautiful. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word.